Being private, Ryan, the premises that a group of men, soldiers, were rescuing James Ryan because all of his brothers were already killed. And this was an act, a gift for a mother to bring back her last remaining son. And so that's, this fills the story of the movie is this mission to bring back Private James Ryan. And the final scene shows their uh, company being depleted, being killed. And the, one of the final scenes is the captain, as he has been shot, having Private Ryan in front of him. And his last breath, he has this final word Earn this. Earn this to James Ryan. As the, the battle scene fades away, it shows James Ryan much older. After living his life with his children, his grandchildren, by his side in a graveyard, visiting this gravesite, who is soon to be the captain. As he's looking down into the tombstone, he's having these memories, and we realize this movie has been one long flashback. And he says, every day, I think about what you said on that bridge. I live the best that I could. I hope that was enough, after all you did for me. His wife comes to him on the side, and in desperation... He says to his wife, tell me, I've lived a good life. Tell me, I'm a good man. And you get the picture that James Ryan has lived his life from 18 all the way to his old age with that thought of mind, that question, that command throughout his life, earn this, earn this. Earn this. And so when it's all said and done, all that he had was a hope that perhaps, maybe, I'm good enough. I think that probably encapsulates much of our thinking in regards to Christ. I don't know how many times I've been called to the side of someone as they are looking at the end of their life and realizing there's not much more left. And they ask this question, or they make this statement, I hope I'm good enough. I've lived the best that I could. I hope that I'm good enough. And the question that's begged to be asking, and, and that's the unwritten question, is am I good enough to be right with God? Am I good enough that when I come to this judgment time that a sense is there before God, I hope that I'm good enough. Or, it could be looking back, knowing what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And knowing the act of love and sacrifice, it could be the question is, am I good enough for what Christ has done? Have I earned the sacrifice of Christ? And so there's this question lingering on our conscience. As we come time to dying, am I good 
enough. And there is always a lingering doubt to that question. There's that that unsaid no. And we struggle with that. And you come to a pastor hoping for affirmation that the no that is ringing in your ears is just a lie. Pastor, someone tell me, please. This no is not true, is it? I want to take you to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. As we study the book of Galatians, and I want to bring this text to this question. This idea that we live our life earning it. Living our life hoping we're good enough. And I just want to present to you from this text, this question is no longer being asked of us. Because that little voice ringing in the ear that says, no, is true. No, we're not good enough. No, we did not earn it. No. We cannot earn it. And that may seem like words of despair and condemnation to you. But I'm going to tell you from what the gospel says and what the text is saying today is that when you come to terms with the no, you're not good enough, you can find a savior. You can find the blessing of the gospel if you can say and have the guts to say before your conscience, before God, no, You are not right with God. And you have not lived good enough, even though you lived the best that you could. And I'm going to present to you, there's a freedom found in that. So, with this thought of mine, let's go to Galatians 5, verse 1 through 6. As we study this, Paul is combating those who are in this the region of Galatia, who are saying that you have to have more than the gospel. You have to have more than Christ. You have to have the works of the law in addition to Christ. Christ is a good starting point. It's, it's maybe the A, B, and C's of your life. But let's now go through the D's, E's, and F's all the way through the Z's. And, and let's complete this walk with God. And it's completed not by what the gospel has done, but what it's introduced you to, to the law. And by living these lives and conforming to the law, that now you have hope and now you're growing in your walk with God. And Paul is saying it's not by that. It has always been in the very beginning steps. It's not the A through the Z, or A through C, it's the everything. The same way you began your walk with Christ. Realizing who Jesus is, realizing that forgiveness is there, your dependence on Jesus Christ, the same way you started is the same way you walk every day of your life. Trusting in a Savior for your walk. So I hope to bring this to understanding more as we read. And so in honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read Galatians Galatians 5, verse 1 through 6. You'll read silently as I read aloud. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, who have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You may be seated. I want to bring to you a contrast between what we call a debt mentality, a debt debtor's mentality, where you view God as you are indebted to God and you're constantly trying to pay back God. All right, there's that mentality versus a mentality of the freedom of the Son. To say that you're a son in Christ, God has made you a son and there's a freedom. It is a totally type of different relationship that you might have with God if you look at it as a debtor mentality Versus the freedom of the son mentality. I, I shared with you a few weeks ago about my granddad who um, I, I, uh, I messed up his car, his Cadillac, his new Cadillac, and wiped off the side of the a side mirror with it. And, and I, I talked to with you about how he took that on, and instead of giving me a list of chores. Of all that I would need to do to pay back that uh, accident, he just purchased it and put it back on and said, I do this because you're my grandson. And it freed us to continue in a grandfather-grandson relationship versus an employer-employee versus a debtor relationship. Did that change how I drive? Yes. But it, I drove carefully, not so that it would pay back, but because of what granddad was. He was my granddad. That there was a son relationship there, not a debtor relationship, because of the gift. First of all, I was in college and he knew I had no money. I I had no way of paying him back. But then also because he valued something. And that was the relationship that he and I had. That he knew that if he put this dynamic of a debt into it, it would alter it. And so what I present to you is that you have a God who has given something to you. Not with the idea that you're going to pay him back. But because you are a son to him. And you have a freedom of a son. And so what he says, Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, Christ has died on the cross to pay a debt we could not pay, not so that we could enter into a debtor relationship, but that he could bring us into a sonship relationship, that there is a freedom involved in that. I live my life not to pay back something Jesus Christ has done for me. This may be strange to you. This is an attitude or a thought you hear in church. I'm going to pay back because after all Christ has done for me, then I ought to be able to do this. And we understand the sense of this, but I want you to understand there's danger when you think you're paying back. 
Christ for what he's done, that it changes your relationship with him. And so believers relate to God as free sons and not debtors. So, for freedom Christ has set us free. Now stand firm, therefore. Don't change the way you view God. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go into the mindset that if I do something, then maybe God will approve of me. Here's something you've got to come to terms with. And it is a great thing to do. To wake up each day understanding there is nothing you can do to make God love you more than He already loves you. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you more. And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. Do you understand that? When you wake up in the day, to know at the end of the day, come what may, God's love will not waver one way or the other by the end of this day. Why? Because His love is perfect and it is not based on my performance. It is based on a gift. God gives love. Perfectly, freely. I wish, I wish and I pray that you could understand the height, the depth, the magnitude, the great expanse of God's love for us individually. That is the prayer of Paul. That is my prayer for me. That is my prayer for you that we understand this. And so understand, bring out this idea. It's for freedom. It is a way of thinking toward God that God has done this, not to bring us back into slavery. So what is this idea of freedom and slavery? Galatians 1.4 introduced this to us in the very beginning when he said, Jesus, who gave himself for our sin to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There is something that we are in bondage to just by being human, all right? There's just, there, there is this, and I would present to you what we're in bondage to is this idea that everything revolves around me and that if I get anywhere with God, it's because of, I did it. And so we have a multitude of work religion which gives us our prescriptions of all the things we have to do so that we'll be approved by God. And so it doesn't matter the name of it. It all carries the same idea that God is going to be indebted to us. So, what is this freedom here? First of all, it's not the freedom to do anything you want. Because I would present to you, you already have the freedom to sin, don't you? Is anybody telling you, I mean, I know the government is, but no one's saying you're not able to sin. I've got all kinds of ability to do any sin. Do you understand that? And I'm not just especially depraved. We all are especially messed up. We have the ability to do any sin. There's all kinds of freedom there. So when he talks about Christ has set us free, we're talking about something different. All right? Something different. What, what is this freedom? What, I think about 2 Corinthians 3.17 where it talks about the Spirit of God. It says the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. It talks about this liberty, this freedom that comes with the Spirit of God. Galatians 5 is going to tell us the, uh, what the gospel does in our life. Galatians 1-4 through 4 is telling us what the gospel is. Now chapter 5 and 6 is how it's living out in our life. In Galatians 5 it talks about something called the fruit of the Spirit. What I present to you is that in verse 1 it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. I would say that it has set us free to love. Christ has set us free 
to exude joy. Christ has set us free to manifest, to reveal peace. Christ has set us free to display patience. Christ has set us free to show kindness. Christ has set us free to live in goodness. Christ has set us free to live in faithfulness. Christ has set us free to walk in gentleness. Christ has set us free to be self-control. Isn't that interesting? Why do I say that? When Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit. And so these are the very things that I have great inability to do. I get frustrated on a daily basis to love, to be kind, to be gentle. I get frustrated in exuding joy. I get frustrated in peace. And these are the type of things I pray. God, give me joy. God, I want peace. These are the things I can't purchase. How do you pay for peace? How do you buy joy? How do you buy kindness and goodness? Where can I acquire it? What store do I go to buy this? I can't buy it. And I can't work for it. How do I work up joy? How do I work up peace? How do these things come in my life? And the Bible is saying in Galatians 5 that they're given. They're given as fruits. It is a byproduct of the presence of God in my life. These things are gifts. And so when he says Christ has set us free, he set us free to walk as Christ walked. Christ is being formed in us. I'm going to tell you this is different from anything you might hear that says that they're a religion. These things are given to us. As gifts. So he set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go thinking that God is indebted to you because you're so good that you, God's going to give you the life you want because you're so religious. So, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, mark my words. Listen, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. All right, now, circumcision was the Jewish ritual uh, whereby it made everyone uh, aware, I am advancing in Judaism. I am now a Jew because I've gone through this ritual of circumcision that's going to be followed by many other rituals, dietary laws, special days, feasts. And, and so the, the Judaizers were coming into the region and saying, look, all right, Christ is a great way to get started, but now let's complete the cycle. You must be a Jew to walk with God, be circumcised, go through this ritual. And, and, and so he's saying, look, if you do this, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, what, what are we saying here? The debtor mentality. In other words, I'm going to do good, do good, do good, so God will accept me. This debtor mentality that I owe back to God, because of all God's done for me, I owe it back to him so that I hope to pay him back. So now I'm going to get circumcised after all that God has done for me. I'm now going to get circumcised. Now, this mentality bypasses Christ's benefits. It bypasses Christ's benefits. Notice he says, so if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. The background to this is Acts 15, verse 1 and 2. It says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching to the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. This was a a church-wide problem that was going to be settled in this Jerusalem council. And this letter could very well be written on the way to this council or just right before that. 
Now, I would present to you that the act itself is not wrong. Circumcision itself is not wrong. Paul himself was circumcised as a Jew. In fact, later on, we find that Paul has Timothy, one of his his students, circumcised. But it was done for the purpose of missionary work to the Jews. Not so that Timothy would be accepted by God. The action itself was not wrong. The motive was wrong. To think that I'm going to get this act done to me so that I'll be right before God. So what does that mean? You can change the action. Change the action. It could be baptism. It could be joining a church, singing in the choir, uh, giving. If you're doing it with the hope that now God is going to look at favor with me. Okay? That God's going to look at favor with you because you did this. That motive is wrong. That motive is what he's hitting at right here. This idea that you're going to get indebted, or God's going to get indebted to you because you're indebted to him. You're going to pay back because all that God has done for you. I'm going to share with you why that's wrong in just a little bit. But first, you need to understand, it bypasses Christ's benefits. It has no advantage. Why? Because you start trusting, you start trusting in your works and not in what Christ has done for you. Chuck Colson, uh, he, uh, his prison fellowship ministry is something he started. He was involved in Watergate uh, back in the 70s, was convicted for his role, uh, put into prison, became a believer. He read a book called Born Again. I, I encourage you to read it. It is a great uh, testimony, autobiography. Uh, it encouraged my faith when I read it. So I encourage you to read that, that book. But he, he tells a story of visiting a prison in San Jose dos Campos, Brazil. And he visited a prison the government, government of Brazil turned over to two believers. And they renamed it Humanita. And it's, the idea is to run it on Christian principles. In mode, the inmates do most of the work save for two full-time personnel Families outside come in and adopt uh, the prisoners who work with them while they're in prison and then after uh, their imprisonment. So Chuck Colson visits this prison and he found all the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys, opened the gates, and let him in. (laughs) Wherever he walked, he saw men at peace. He saw clean, clean living areas, people who worked industriously. The walls were decorated with biblical sayings from Psalms and Proverbs. And his guide escorted him to the notorious prison cell once used for torture. Today, he told him, the block houses only a single inmate. As we reached the end of the long concrete corridor, and he put the key in the block, he paused and asked, Are you sure you want to go in? Of course, replied impatiently. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. Slowly, he swung open the massive door, and I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell. A crucifix. Beautifully carved by the humanity inmates. The prisoner, Jesus, hanging on a cross. He's doing time for the rest of us, my guide said softly. The benefit, the advantages of the cross. We live our life knowing that Jesus paid our prison term. I don't go back in an obligated law so that God will accept me because Jesus paid the term. He paid the term. If I start doing things to try to pay back what Christ has done, I get in a debtor mentality. I start trusting in that 
instead of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. Now, let's keep on reading. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So he says, all right, you want to do one part of the law? They're saying to the Galatians, the Judaizers, well, you know, Paul didn't tell you all about the gospel. We're, we're going to complete the job. And so Paul responds back, well, they're not telling you all about the law. Let me tell you about that. And so if you start doing one thing as a way of paying back Jesus Christ to say, I'm going to pay him back in, in this debt mentality. He's my boss and I'm the employee. And instead of he's being the father and I the son. Do you understand the difference between that? Instead of this father-son freedom, a boss-employee-debtor mentality. He says, you do this, then you're obligated to go throughout the whole law. It's, it's not after all Christ has done, it's mine to pay him back. Listen, you can't pay him back. Do you understand that? You can't pay him back. Now, here's the other thing. This idea, I'm going to pay back all that God has done for for me. Has he finished doing for you? This is based on this idea that Jesus finished the work that's being done. He finished the work of salvation on the cross. But listen, every day I wake up, God is giving to me grace. How do you pay back what daily God is giving to you? How do you pay that back? You can't pay it back. There's no end to what God is giving to you. And so you can't pay it back. It's still being applied to me. Now, the idea that you're going to pay the law back. Here's here's the thing. There's no end to it. I do the circumcision here. Okay. I'm going to go to church here. I'm going to celebrate the feast day here. I've got the Sabbath day here. I've got this sacrifice here. I've got the Ten Commandments. There are over 600 commands in the Old Testament. And every day is a whole new opportunity to do all 600 of them over again. I just want to present to you, if you're trying to pay back God, there is no end. There is no end to paying them back. You can't do enough. There is no satisfaction because of this. And you end at the end of your life saying, I did the best that I could. I hope it was enough. And there's this nagging feeling, I don't think it is. And I'm just telling you, that nagging feeling's right. You can't do enough. So we come to verse 4. We're going to find that the debtor mentality will not experience grace. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified the law, you have fallen away from grace. So if you seek to be be justified by the law, you're, you're separating yourself. You're making Christ ineffective to you. So you can't have half Christ. Either have you have whole Christ or not at all. I shared with you about a year ago the story of me going on a kayak trip with my daughter, Carissa. Um, some of you remember it, some of you are here, and I think it's worth bringing up again because it illustrates this point, especially I've been thinking about going again. River swollen and all kinds of, you know, 
thinking, yeah, it's about time. For some reason, she doesn't want to go with me this year. Um, but it, it ended up being a six-hour trip. Uh, we went, got in at the dam. My goal was to get out near our house. The news server comes near our house. We didn't make it that far because uh, it's six hours, and I was still, I think I got off of Anderson Park. And, uh, and so about an hour and a half into it, uh, she gets tired. Um, and she's flipped over once. You know, I've gotten her, put her back in the boat, and lost a flip-flop. And, um, you know, it, it's not looking good. And, and so, you know, she's with Dad. Dad's not very merciful. And, and so desperation gets worse. And I'm thinking, we've got a long ways to go. Well, what am I going to do? How, do? how do we take care of this? And, and I started asking myself, God, what would you do? How, how do you, you treat me? And, and there's a part of me, God says, so suck it up, you know, just endure. You know, there's, there's that part, you know. But then there's another part that God says, I carry you. I carry you. And, and so I, I take a rope, tie it to hers, and I tow her the rest of the way. I don't know, four hours more. And uh, she's, she's not crying anymore. She's, she's good. She's just sitting there. She's relaxed. And, and I realized how good the situation was because I saw that there was dam, didn't realize there was a dam near Old Milburney and got caution signs. If you continue, things will, you know, get harmful, fatal even. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, is this really applying to me, you know? And, um, and then I see the mist rising. I'm thinking, that's a real dam. That's not just a little dip, you know, that, that's going to be bad. And so we pull over and, and we have to cross the, the river and, and find a trail in which I have to carry both of our kayaks around and uh, around the dam, through the woods, up and down hills and ravines. I'm thinking, you know, there's no way Carissa could do these things that I'm, I'm doing. And it's a good thing she's with me. And, and I, we avoid the uh, devastation of the dam and eventually we get home. And, and I just think back and, and re- remembering the, the lesson as I was trying to learn, how, how does God treat us as a, as a father to a son? And I'm thinking, that's it. God doesn't say to us, I'm going to count on your rowing ability and your skills and abilities because he's already seen that I'm crying. He's seen me flip over uh, in the river of life a few times and it's looking ugly. And I finally get to the point where I say, God, I am bankrupt. I have nothing within me to make it through the life to love and, and to love you and to love others and have peace and kindness. I don't have that ability, God. And I start crying out to God and God doesn't say, suck it up. Let's roll. Because he knows that I can't. And he says, attach yourself to me. Attach yourself to me in Christ. And Christ becomes the tie. The tie is me with God the Father. And my main job is I'm not necessarily rowing and counting on my rowing, but I'm just making sure the rope's tied. I'm just sitting in the boat and I'm making sure the rope's tied and it's getting me there. And so when the Father says there is a judgment day and there is going to be a point in time where if I'm not in Christ, it's going to end badly that I watch Christ and He guards me and takes me away from that condemnation because I'm in Christ. There's not a part within me that says, let me just roll a little bit here, Christ. 
Let me just row a little bit. I think I can handle this. But no, there is the, the trust and the rest and the fact that God's carrying me through. Listen, I'm going to tell you that's the grace of God that is activated, activated every day in our life. Every day I wake up, God is intervening in my life for my good. That I will walk with God. That is the grace of God. And if I have this debtor mentality of thinking, okay, God, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do something here and then, and then we'll be all right. I'm going to miss out on the benefit of Christ. I'm going to bypass. I will never know the satisfaction of trusting Christ. And I'm going to be headed toward the dam because I'm trusting my own abilities and I will not experience the grace of God. Notice it says, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is in contrast to those who have fallen away from Christ. These are the ones, they, they don't know the grace of God. They don't know Christ as their Savior because they're trusting in their works. They don't know the freedom to joy. They don't know the freedom to love, the freedom to gentleness. They don't know the freedom to these things because they're trusting in their ability. Steve Brown uh, tells a story of uh, his daughter in an English literature course. It was extremely difficult. And after the first day, she's talking to her dad. She says, I, I think if I don't transfer, I'm going to... I'm going to fail this class. The other people in class are smarter than me. I can't do it. She's coming home with tears in her eyes, begging her dad to help her get out of the class. And he says, okay, I'll help you out. So he went to the school, met with the teacher, and um, had this meeting. And the teacher, the head of the English department, looked up and saw the father and the daughter. I could tell that the daughter of Robin was about to cry, you know, just on the verge. There's some students standing around. She says, you know, it dismisses the students that I'd, I'd like to talk to these two privately for a little bit. And Robin begins to cry as the dad's saying, I'm, I'm here to get my daughter out of the English class. It, it's too difficult for her. The problem with the daughter was that she was too conscientious. So I, I need to put her in an English, regular English class. The teacher replied, Mr. Brent, I understand. Then she looked at Robin and said, I want, to, I want to talk to Robin for just a little bit um, in private. So she got Robin and said, I know how you feel. What if I promised you an A, no matter what you did in that class? If I give you an A before you even started, would you be willing to take the class? Now, she's not so dumb. Pass that one up. She starts sniffling and said, well, I, I think I could do that. She said, okay, I'm going to give you an A in that class. You already have an A, so go to class. Later on, the teacher explained to Steve what she did. How she took away the threat of a bad grade so that Robin could learn English. Robin ended up making straight A's on her own in that class. That's what God's doing with us. So that... I'm going to give you an A. I don't want you to live anymore out of this threat, out of a debtor mentality. I give you an A. But he's so much more than that. What does he do? Well, we read in verse 5, for the through the Spirit, he gives us his Spirit. For through the Spirit, by faith, 
We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Free sons have a hope of righteousness. I'm going to tell you the Judaizer, the ones who are counting on being circumcised and doing the, word of, uh, doing the law of God, they were waiting for the day of judgment. Just as sons wait for the day of judgment, the difference is that the Judaizers, those who are wanting to, to count on the law, they have this hope in themselves. And so therefore they're not very sure. Those who have the relationship of a son, who have the spirit of God in their life, have hope and righteousness. Hope in the spirit of God. Hope and Christ, not their works. Their main job is, I'm tied. I'm tied, right? You know, my boat's still tied. It's not, you know, okay. <laughs> and God says in Romans 8, there's nothing that separates us from the love of in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. My boat may capsize, but as I'm attached to Christ, he writes me up and carries me on. And so my, I have a hope of righteousness because it's based in Christ, not mankind, not myself. And so we keep on reading verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the Spirit, by faith, for the hope of righteousness. The Spirit of God's working in my life. What do I have faith in? I have faith in Christ. How do I have faith in Christ? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Listen, you know one of the things I think is so important right now is I just present to you the words of Christ. If I just present to you the words of Christ and I count on the spirit of God working in that, I believe that God is doing a supernatural work in the listener's ear when he applies it. By His Spirit. When you hear the Word of God and the Spirit brings it to life in you, you start to trust in Christ. You trust in what He's saying. As you trust and depend and hope in what He's saying, the Spirit of God works in you. And what is He doing as He's working in you? He is forming Christ in you. What do I do every day? How does this work in my day every day? When the Bible says, I'm in Christ, what does that mean? To be in Christ. What does that mean to be tied to Christ? What is this, this idea of spirit by faith, eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness? Well, how does this work in my life? That means when I wake up each day, I do what I just shared with you. I know that at the end of the day, God's love isn't going to decrease for me one bit. And he will not increase for me because it cannot. And that the greatest joy in my life is his presence in my life walking with him that the spirit of god is working in me and so that when i do things out of love toward others it is god working in me and not this fear of you know what if god did so much for me so i'm going to do this for this person it's not this this obligation but it is a free work of christ being wrought in me and so it goes back to the very idea that i'm hearing the word of god and I believe it. Jesus said, my words, in my words are life. My words are life and they are spirit. What is he saying? It is by hearing the words of Christ, believing, trusting in these things that the spirit of God does a supernatural work in me that I have a hope of righteousness. This is something yet to be. It's, it's an interesting. God calls me righteous, but there's still a judgment day that awaits me. There's a judgment day that awaits me. And which the righteousness that God's given to me is evident. And I by, bypass 
the waterfalls of God's judgment because of that. So, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. <laughs> what? Baptism. I'm baptism if I'm doing it so that God will love me. That doesn't count. Joining a church of, by hope that maybe God will love me and God will accept me if I join this church, it doesn't count for anything. This also has an ethnic idea to this. It's, it, it's, it's neither for or against. I'm not proved by God because I avoided circumcision and I'm not proved by God because I became circumcised. It, it's irrelevant now. It's totally irrelevant. Yes, I'm an ethnic Jew It's interesting, 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul says this statement. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. I thought, well, Paul, you became as a Jew. Aren't you a Jew? How did you have to become as a Jew? What does this statement mean? You, you are a Jew. What is, he says, to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. You see, Paul no longer identified himself as that main thing of an ethnic background. That wasn't his main identity anymore. The fact that he was a Jew or not a Jew. His main identity was in Christ. So I can't make it my main identity to say, Scotch-Irish, English background. That's not my identity. My main identity is not that I'm American. It's not that I'm African. Korean, or Arabic, or Hispanic. These things no longer are my main identity markers. Now it is the fact that I am Christ, that I'm trusting and holding in and who Christ is and what He's done for me. It is forming who I am. I remember the first time I came across my pastor when I was working in college and he was talking about cars and what they are and what they aren't. And he said, he made this statement. He said, I've learned not to make my car what identifies me. I thought, whoa. That was profound to a 19-year-old young guy. What? Your car doesn't identify you? He said, no. Christ identifies me. Up to that point, I lived my life and I became conscious my freshman year in college that I was constantly looking at other guys and comparing them to me. And I was constant in it. Oh yeah, he's cooler than me. Nah, he's not as cool. He doesn't look as good as me. You know, just, he's not as smart. He's not, he's not as athletic. He's not, and it's this kind of, oh, he might be. I'm not going to hang out with him. You know, this constant barrage of mental activity of comparing myself to the other people around so that I could have some sense of identity to find my place in this world, that this is where I am in this niche. You laugh. But you know you do, you've done it. You've done it too. I just want to share with Mother's Day that constant barrage that mothers are saying to themselves, I'm a terrible mom, I'm a terrible mom. And I'm just saying to you, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking in the wrong place for your identity. It doesn't come from that. No longer is it you're a good mom, or that you're rich, or you're a good business person, or that you're good family, that you have a good 
wife or you have good kids. These are no longer your identifying marks or whether what kind of car you have. These things are so fragile. It is now, as Paul says, it's in Christ. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. As he says in Galatians 3, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians, or that was Colossians 3.11, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. I'm bought. <laughs> I'm bought. It's not who am I, but whose am I? It's not what kind of man I am, but to what man I belong. I am Christ, and he bought me with a magnificent gift I could not repay if I lived the rest of my life. And he said, and he told me, stop trying. (laughs) Stop trying? Yes, just be his son. Just like I was just a grandson. And I said, I can do that. I can do that. And so each day I can wake up knowing that God cannot, will not love me more than he already does. And I cannot do anything to make him love me more or make him love me less. Oh, I pray you could understand how much God loves you. This is the gospel. It is not anything different from the very beginning when God says to you, I knew you while you were still sinner and yet I died for you. Will you just admit that you need a Savior? Come and trust me. Confess your sins before me and and say to God, God, I can't, I don't know how, but, to, but will you just help me live for you? Will you let your son, will you let your spirit live in me? Will you form Christ in me? That is how you began this walk. Just as you received Christ, so walk ye in him every day of your life. Go back to that same essential thing. Christ is my Savior. I can't make him love me anymore. And if you have the gift of knowing you're about to die when you're about to die, you don't say, I hope I'm right with God. You don't say, well, I did the best that I could. You don't wonder whether or not you earned it because you didn't. That's the great joy, as it was given to you. And my certainty, my hope of my righteousness does not rely in my performance, but in what Jesus performed. Not only for me, but is performing in me every day of my life. And I'm not yet righteous by my life, but I have the hope of righteousness that there'll be a day and time where before God, God will see me not just from His eyes, but from everyone's eyes will see Christ in me. And right now it's a struggle because it's battling with myself. But I've got the powerful ally in God working in me. What counts? Faith. Working in love. The love of God given to me. Setting abroad by the Holy Spirit in my heart. His love. 
that I trust in. I trust in his word. I trust in his working. I rely on the spirit of Christ and is working in me love toward others. The fruit of the spirit. I'm going to tell you, you can't get that by doing five pillars of the faith. You can't do that by any degree of meditation. You can't do that by joining a church and doing the Ten Commandments. God does it. God does it. Will you let God work in your life? That's what I'm praying for. Let's pray.